Welcome to the Sunday edition of CNN 5 Things. I'm David Rind. There's really no way to understate how dramatic and historic the last few days have been in Ukraine. After months of building up troops along the border, Russia launched a full-scale invasion, complete with tanks and rockets. It's Europe's largest land war since World War II. So this week, we're going to do something a little different and play you a special episode of the CNN podcast Tug of War. We're bringing it back for a new season as this crisis unfolds to provide some context and clarity around this moment. In the first episode, our chief international correspondent Clarissa Ward takes us to Kyiv and speaks with her producer Brent Swales about what it's been like to witness the invasion. And then twice a week, I'll be calling up more members of our CNN team on the ground and around the world to peel back the many, many layers of this story. Again, the podcast is Tug of War. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen, and we'll be back with your regular Five Things updates tomorrow morning. Okay, here is Tug of War, Ukraine. This is how it starts pretty much every single night now. Air raid sirens, then the bombardment starts. The Ukrainian authorities are telling us that we can't any longer use our live shot position on the roof, and they've asked us to keep our lights down, which makes me think we might be in for another long night. I'm Clarissa Ward, CNN's chief international correspondent, and I've been covering this region for over 15 years. I mean, we're talking hundreds of people spread out throughout this entire subway station. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the largest land war in Europe since World War II. The stakes couldn't be higher. There's another salvo being fired right now. There are big explosions taking place in Kiev. Well, Poland says that some 100,000 Ukrainians have fled into Poland since the beginning of the conflict, and now there are even more. As the situation escalates before our eyes, CNN reporters on the ground are bringing you a special season of Tug of War, the podcast where we take listeners to the most volatile corners of the world to document some of the greatest power struggles of our time. That mission now feels more urgent than ever. We don't want to be a part of Russia or any other country. It's really getting very emotional. It's Saturday, February 26. And for weeks, I've been here with my team, producer Brent Swales. Hi, Brent. Hey, Clarissa. And cameraman Scotty McWinney. I think one of the things that's so striking, Brent, and tell me if you agree with this, but we've been here now for the better part of like five, six weeks. Yeah. And all along, we were saying this is never going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And no one, no one really seemed to believe it was going to happen. Well, it was, it was, you know, it's odd because we kept getting the U.S. intelligence reports, right? And I think that's also what was so striking is that how forthcoming they were with giving us the intelligence because it seemed like all we were getting for so many weeks was just U.S. intelligence that said Putin's going to invade Ukraine. And even the Ukrainians were really rebutting this idea. They were saying that they didn't think there was going to be an all-out invasion. They were not happy about the messaging that was coming out of the U.S. We were going out in the very small windows of spare time that we had to restaurants and cafes, you know, 
people were living their lives normally. People were thinking that the whole threat of this was overblown. And the next day, Russia has invaded. It's like your brain almost can't compute. I guess it's kind of a, a why now, right? Because it's not just about Ukraine. It's about that Putin looked. Was this like the opportunistic time for him to make this move, do you think? I think that, you know, look, you have to understand the backdrop to all of this. Authoritarianism is on the rise. Right. Liberal democracies are facing existential challenges. I talked to someone recently here, a Ukrainian, who was saying, while you guys are all carried away and immersed in your culture wars, we're fighting for our way of life. And, and your way of life. And your way of life, exactly. And I think that fundamentally that's what this comes down to. And that's why you're seeing such an, a really extraordinary resistance being mounted. However, David and Goliath-esque the dynamics are here, Ukrainians do not want to live under Russia. They have lived mm. under authoritarianism before. They have experienced that. They have chosen through democratic processes, not to any longer be a part of that and to be independent and to be free and to be outward looking and to be engaged with the West. And they're committed to that path. So there was this, there was this long rambling speech on Tuesday um, that Putin gave where you kind of got the sense that for the first time that he, he, he might actually do it. He might actually invade. It was 57 minutes and it was chilling stuff. I mean, basically, he was outlining why Ukraine is not really a sovereign state, why Russia is actually the creator of Ukraine. He accuses Ukraine's leadership of being drug addicts and neo-Nazis, which is patently ridiculous, not least because the president here, Volodymyr Zelensky, is actually Jewish. And he talks a lot as well about the Donbass region and this alleged genocide that has been happening in these pro-Russian separatist areas um, where the war has been fought for the last eight years. Needless to say, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever to support these claims of any kind of a genocide. All sorts of ludicrous distortions of history, but which, when laid out in the way that he did made it clear to me for the first time that he was actively going to pursue um, some kind of a military invasion. And then it was another speech, and it was a, it was a much shorter speech. But remember when we were in Kharkiv and... 5.40 in the morning, five, Russian time. Yeah. We were getting into bed, and then I, I saw on Twitter that President Putin was speaking. And seven minutes later... And you called me. And I literally, I remember because it was, it would have been the first sleep in about 22 hours that mm. we had. And I was so looking forward to it. And then you called me and you said, Putin speaking. And then I said, no, it can't be. And sure enough. And it was extraordinary. He spoke for six or seven minutes. I think it was obviously pre-recorded. Yeah. And then we're standing out on that balcony and the boom started right away. We're on the third night, right? In terms of kind of the sustained airstrikes. Um, and and now it's becoming like clockwork every single night when it, when it gets dark, it seems that the air raid sirens are going off and you can kind of hear the booms and it's getting more sustained, right? 
It's definitely getting more sustained. And I think that the shock wears off and the reality sets in. And it's horrifying, honestly, because there's no end in sight and there's nowhere for people to go that's safe. We were interviewing all these families in that shelter at a subway station yeah. or a metro station in Kharkiv and asking people, you know, do you have a car? Can you flee? And they were like, well, where do we go? The whole of Ukraine is being hit. There is nowhere safe to go. And it's and it's also, I mean, they're, and they're going down into these subways um, and, and they're taking everything. I mean, that's to me what was so striking was, you know, to see it, it was it looked like scenes out of World War Two and the Blitz and to see people with their pets, with their cats, with their dogs, with their children. And you interviewed that one young mother, remember? Mm-hmm. And you and you specifically asked her, said, well, what do you have? Are you going to spend the night here? What do you have? And she just literally lifted up a grocery bag that had a few snacks. Mm-hmm. And she I remember her well. Oksana was her name. She was there with her two kids. You seem remarkably strong given how scary the situation is. We, we try to uh, be um, brave because we have children and we don't uh, want to um, show them that we are scared. I find that so haunting and kind of moving and powerful because in the midst of the ugliness and the insanity of this war, you find these small acts of like huge strength and resilience and and generosity to try to hide your own fears and make a situation seem like something you can actually process and deal with for the sake of your children. I mean, that's not, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, And it's something I'm struck by in so many war zones that um, that I've spent time in is like the ability of people to put their own emotions and fears to one side and to project some semblance of happiness and security for their kids. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about how far this might go. So how far do you think he'll he'll go? I mean, do you think he'll capture Kyiv? I think it's his intention to capture Kyiv. I'm not sure he'll be able to. I think he's facing a lot more resistance than he had anticipated. I think they're having more problems on the supply line front than they had maybe predicted. And I think it's, you know, you're feeling the full force as well of the international community's outrage and sanctions, though... That he probably anticipated more and and cares less about. I think he's already crossed the Rubicon, and that's the problem you have, is there definitely is no clear exit ramp for him now. How does he get out now without finishing it? The goal appears to be to take Kiev, take out the government, install a puppet regime, and then leave. He said in his speech that there's no intention of occupying Ukraine. But if he gets bogged down 
as he seems to be, because they had talked about this being a matter of days in terms right. of even the U.S. intelligence had predicted a matter of days. Right. So if he gets bogged down, what happens next? Does he start using more indiscriminate weapons? Does he start, you know, allowing more brutality to try to force a surrender? I think that's the fear that a lot of people here have. And 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 also, I kind of, you know, I'm just when we were driving around today, and it was the first the first time that we really got out, you know, after the after the initial bombardment, the streets were really really quiet, right? But there was a lot of civil defense on the streets. Old men, young boys. We drove by that one police station where there was a line all the way around the corner of of me- of men who basically were were getting weapons. They just had to show their national ID at a police station and they would get a gun. I mean, that's that's kind of terrifying to think about, you know, that this could this could be urban warfare. It is terrifying. It is terrifying. It's also just extraordinary to me to see that every Ukrainian you talk to Mm. is willing and frankly wanting to get involved in some way and do something. And they've even had explainers on Ukrainian television channels about how to make Molotov cocktails. And they've been telling people, stay at home, take cover, don't endanger yourself, but learn how to make Molotov cocktails and throw them out the window at, you know, at the invader. And when you see that level of resistance, you realize that even though this army is undoubtedly unmatched by Russia's military, they're going to have a fight on their hands, especially Mm. if they're determined to take Kiev. They're going to have a hell of a fight on their hands. I don't think sanctions are going to be an effective deterrent. That's not to say they won't hurt and they won't bite, because I'm sure they will. They're very robust sanctions that we're seeing. Canceling Nord Stream 2 is obviously a huge deal. But in terms of what can deter President Putin, I'm reminded of a young man I interviewed in that metro station called Vladimir, who said, Putin respects the language of power. Putin respects force. The idea being that there would need to be some kind of military intervention in support of Ukraine's army to actually stop this thing. Now, this is just coming from Ukrainian people. This is how they feel. Obviously, the minute you have military support and some kind of an intervention, you're also then upping the ante as well. So it's a complex thing. It's not straightforward. And at this stage, there is absolutely no inclination that the U.S. or NATO intends to get involved militarily. But that is one option. Yeah, but they've said it repeatedly from the beginning, right? And and I think that's been the frustration of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian government since the beginning, right? They That, that was the one thing that they kept saying, you know, we're, we're fine. We're, you know, we can defend ourselves. We've been We've been dealing with this war for eight years. But there was always that but, right? We need more weapons. We need more support. You know, ultimately, they're out on an island here. They are. And they always knew that when it came down to it, despite the support, despite the sanctions, they were going to have to fight this on their own. And what's amazing to see is that that's exactly what they're doing. And it may not be enough to stop it, but it has definitely slowed it down. Thank you for joining us for this special episode. 
While I'm on the ground, I've asked my colleague David Rind, host of CNN's Five Things, to step in and help make sense of the biggest moments as they happen, to provide critical context around them. We'll be posting regular updates, so make sure you follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by David Rind, along with Paula Ortiz, Audrey Harwitz, and Nathan Miller. Brent Swales is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Andrew Morse, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Rafina Ahmed. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.